Father, thanks for the privilege of opening your word. Thank you that you have not uh, left us directionless, that you've not left us hopeless, uh, to where we get to make up the, the spiritual things and truths that, that will uh, govern our lives. But rather, before the foundations of the world, you had this all thought out, and a part of this great plan is that you would give us your written word. And through your written word, you would transform lives for eternity. So as we get into your word this morning, Father, we talk about it a few minutes uh, collectively and then go to our groups. We pray that as a result of opening your word, that we would never be the same. That as we look at an eternal word from an eternal God, that uh, it will be received just as that. That you will do great things in our lives as a result of having time of hearing from you. So we commit our time to you, ask you to stir our hearts, change our lives, make us a, a light on a hill that can't be put out. Thanks for this time in Christ's name. Amen. Come on in, fellas. Yeah, I tried to tell you it's time to quit drinking that coffee out there. Dee, were you back here leading in that charge? Was that the problem? Yeah, you know I should have known Elliot's back here causing trouble. See, that's the difference between me and Blake. I'll call you out. I don't care. I, like Brad, I'm just open. I get fired. And I, but I don't want to do anything too bad that you have to fire me. So it's one of those deals. We're studying Colossians 2 and 3 this morning. Um, I didn't quite finish my coffee, so I'm going to share that as we, uh, as we get rolling. What I'm interested in doing with this time, uh, it, for the next, I guess I'm back... Blake's back for a week or two, and then I have the rest of the time as we get into Ephesians and Philippians. Guys, I'm just really concerned that after you read, you spend time in God's Word, whether it's in the morning or afternoon or in the evening or whenever it is that you stow away for a few minutes and you ask God to speak to you, that you leave the Word knowing what you, where you've been. I'm really concerned that as men, we often read... Uh, the Bible a little bit like we read textbooks in college, where you'd read about seven, eight pages or even chapters, and then you close it and you go, what did I read? You know, the idea of reading the Bible so that you can check the box that says, okay, I have spent time with God, uh, should be discouraging to you. When you close the book, whether you've been there for ten minutes or you've been there for two hours, you should know where you've been. And it's just kind of my constant thing that, I, that I, as I tell men and women about time in the Scriptures, no matter whether you work on one word, one verse, two chapters, that you know where you've been. You should be able, when you're through, whatever that amount of time is, to say, okay, I just read this, and it means this, and here's my action. So as we share a few minutes together uh, on Thursday mornings before you go to small groups, that's going to kind of be my goal, is that you know where you've been, and you know what you're looking for. Blake packaged this to say that we, when we study the Scriptures, we look for these six C's. Well, honestly, it's going to be difficult to do a six C program, program every time you open the Scriptures. So I'm asking you to focus on one of them. Know where you've been. Because what you're doing when you're opening God's Word is you're saying, speak to me. Speak to me. I want to hear. 
Those of you who are married, after you've talked to with your spouse, you don't go away going, gosh, you know, I hope that she feels better now that she got to talk to me. And you forget everything and you can care less about what she said. Unfortunately, that's, uh, that's our plight sometimes. Well, we transfer that over to reading the scriptures and it becomes kind of a lesson in futility. And this Colossians 2 and 3, I'm asking you that every time you go to, you read a chapter, that when you're through with that chapter, you say, what did the chapter say? What was God trying to communicate? We talk about the Word of God being particularly the didactic literature. And by didactic, we mean the teaching literature that was so composed by the Holy Spirit that Paul was responsible for a lot of these letters, and they were written. They were written like medical uh, books or how-to books. He would explain theology, and then after he explained the, the why we do things, he would explain the how to do things. It reads different than all the other literature in the, in the Scriptures. It is difficult sometimes to, to be responsible for two chapters in a week. But yet that's just part of where our, our program's going. So we're going to try to break that down and to see what it looks like when you, when you take it in smaller sections. The idea of knowing the big idea. What, what did Paul intend for the people to call aside to even know what, what the issue was? He hadn't been there. That's what Blake told us about the context of understand why he wrote the letter. Well, he he had not been there yet, so he had been hearing things, and so he wanted to shore them up. And in chapter 1, it's important that you understand that Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. I know that's not my passage today, but I think you missed the whole whole book of Colossians if you don't get Colossians 1, 15. It is one of the best, the whole book, those four chapters are what we call Christology. In theology, we're talking about that means it is the best picture of, of what the person of Christ. Nothing else, the person of Christ. And 115 ought to be a memory verse for everyone because it says that Jesus is the visible expression of the invisible God. If you want to know what God's about, if you want to be able to discern His purposes and His pleasures for your life and everybody else's, you have to know who Jesus is. You should read Colossians 1.15 and Stop. And then go back and read four Gospels. Because if you want to know what God is like, you go study the person of Jesus. That's what he did it for. He said, everything you see in the person of Jesus, that's what we know about God. He's God with flesh on. So when you're reading this book, you and I, in the year 2008, and you read the words, he is the visible expression of the invisible God, then you go, your clues tell you, this is what, what, where Blake has been driving and what Summit's been trying to help us all do a little bit better to refine our ability to see what God's got in His Word. 115 ought to say, send you racing back to the Gospels. And then as you read everything that Jesus did, you could, you could outline. You could put in a notebook and say, this is what God is like. This is how God treats people. This is what God thinks of sin. This is what God thinks of the homeless or the helpless. This is what God thinks of people that abuse power. This is what God thinks about money. This is what God thinks about his friends and the betrayal that he experienced. You see, he packaged all of that for us, and they laid it out for us in four books we call the Gospels. But what they are is a picture of God, and that's what he was telling the people in Colossia. So here you go. you got that as the premise of the book. 
And you're right, I really struggle with this, this time limit deal. Not to the point where I'll have to, I'll be crippled, but, uh, I get, we'll get rolling on some of this because I want to teach you some things as well as teach you the how-to. So you have that set up. That's the big idea of chapter one. That Jesus is the visible expression of the invisible God. So what chapters two and three, which you were asked to do the last week, there he's breaking this down. Keep in mind, this is a group that he had not seen, so he is being very methodical in laying this out. The first, everything has to do with Jesus Christ. And in verse 16 of that, of that first chapter, it's, it's just one of it, it's just loaded. So after he tells us that he's the visible expression of the invisible God, he tells us that everything was made by him and everything was made for him. He eliminates the whole idea to these young believers that somehow this Christian faith is for you. This Christian faith is an example of his love, what he has provided for us. He said, everything I do is, is about God, and it's not about us. It begins to transform their whole paradigm of thinking. Your lives today, men, are not about you. They're about how God is going to use you in an eternal world, in a journey. It begins to change the way you look at suffering, the way you look at finances, the way you look at marriage and raising children. It transforms every aspect of your lives. When you start forcing it through the paradigm that it's not about me. That's what verse 16 says in the first chapter. So when we roll into chapters 2 and 3, he's got this situation. He's going, okay, I've told everybody it's about the preeminence of Christ. That it's about Jesus. So chapter 2, he rolls in and he says, oh yeah, I think I've been hearing about some of the things that are going on in your community of faith. And I'm really disturbed because... There's some things going on, I understand, that are disrupting this relationship with the God of the universe. This Jesus that is all important, you're supposed to have a relationship with him, but there are things coming into your lives that are ruining that. So chapter 2, the big idea is he is telling the people in Colossia, as well as in Dallas, the things to avoid if they want to have a healthy relationship with Christ. So everything you see, when you read that, that when you get through reading that chapter, you should walk away from that chapter going, oh man, I guess there's some things here he doesn't want us to do. And then in verse, chapter 2, if you will, um, verse 6, he sets this thing up. He says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord... So walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now built up in him and established in your faith. He says, now that you've received him, walk with him. But he's going to point out at least three things you've got to avoid. We call this the clues. I mean, that's the way we're packaging this, and sometimes that sounds a little bit too clinical for my taste. But the idea is you want to know, what's he talking about? Why is he concerned that we're going to be derailed? He says, if everything's supposed to be about Christ and we're going to be derailed, he says, what are the things that are going to derail you? You see, what God is uh, interested in doing is not only telling these guys some 2,000 years ago or, or 1980 some odd years ago when, when this letter was written, but he's also concerned about telling you guys and telling me of the things that we need to be careful to avoid so that this relationship that Christ died for won't be impaired. And so the clues, what are we looking for in the clues? 
I don't know where I am in all these notes and stuff, but one of the things that, that I want to make sure that I get across, one of the things you guys have got to do when you study the Scriptures for yourself is you have to be observant. You, particularly, you have to watch the verbs. It's unfortunate. The older guys in this group are probably a little more prepared because when we had English and we studied languages and all those things in school years ago, they, they spent so much time on grammar and they spent so much time on, word, on sentence structure. And the key was always the action of the sentence. These verbs. You know, you, you, unless you study foreign languages today, kids don't even know the difference between, you know, a participle and a and an adverb or, or whatever. But in studying the Scriptures, we need to know the different parts of speech, particularly the verbs, the action. I go through when I read a chapter, this is a little tip from my handbook, and I underline verbs while I'm reading, right there in the Scriptures, because it tells me what God did and what God wants me to do. It's the action. It is the purposes behind the whole thing. So I'm looking for verbs. I'm looking for clues in chapter 2. They talk about how to avoid certain things, whatever that is, we'll find that out, that impair or hurt my relationship with Christ. And things that impair or hurt our relationship with Christ necessarily impair the relationships with other people. They will directly affect your marriages. They will directly affect the way you raise your children. And you move about in your social circles with your friends and in your co-workers. How, how valid is your relationship and your walk, how alive it is, has everything to do with your relationship, your horizontal relationships here on earth. So that's why Jesus is saying, avoid these things so that we can stay healthy. That's what I died for. Let's look at some of these clues. Look for these verbs. In verse 8, it's one of the great ones there. I don't think I put the scriptures up, so let me read it to you. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive <coughs> Excuse me, through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. See to it that no one takes you captive. This is one of those great words in the New Testament. Everyone is familiar with captivity, guys. A lot more so than we are. See, they have been captive by the Romans. They have been captive. Everybody around them is either controlled or consumed by another nation. This idea of being a captive has a great, great weight to it to you and me. Because he doesn't say, you know, uh, be careful that they don't kill you. He says, be careful that they don't take you captive. What is a captive? A captive that is someone that is controlled and taken in by an opponent. And they're rendered ineffective. A captive in a war can't go out and fight for his team, can't go fight for his country, can't go fight for his people. What he has done is he was placed aside and he is held in isolation to where he may want to do all these great things for his people, but he can't do anything. Because he is restrained. What Paul is writing here, he says, be careful that you are not taken captive. That you are not taken out of the fight. That you're not rendered ineffective. Where you sit back there and you wish, oh, I wish I could have a better marriage. Wish I could do a better job with the kids. I wish I, I wish there was a better testimony where I work. I wish. He's saying you're being, being t- taken captive. 
And I look around Dallas, Texas, and, and been, having been here now for four, over 40 years, I look and I see there's a, lot, there's a lot of captivity. I see where there's a lot of people who know better, that should be in the fight, that should be changing their worlds, and yet they've been taken captive. And as Paul is writing, yeah, this, this, this sucker will preach, won't it? This passage will preach. This idea, he says, don't be taken captive, is very important to us because he is warning them and he's warning us. And so as I point out a clue to you this morning about how you study the Bible, I am also throwing it right back at you saying, are you being held captive? It makes you want to read the passage, doesn't it? Well, how how does that happen? How do I keep from being held captive? It reads like this. He said it makes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. Philosophy. Man's wisdom. What is what are you buying into? What do you think is right that man thinks is right that's keeping you from following Christ that somehow you've been held captive by something that's not true? Philosophy. It's pretty interesting. I think it's man's wisdom. You see these our folks that go off to college, our children, and you get these men and women that pontificate about how wise they are and how smart they are. But, you know, they just fill them with their own thoughts and their own strategies and their own uh, systems of thinking that do not share a biblical worldview and that are not biblically ingrained or they're, they're, they're not scripturally solid. And so they overwhelm our children with messages that are of the world's philosophy. But they go on with us, too. The impact of philosophy of evolution, what Todd covered last Sunday, is so significant. Because it leaves, it could leave out a whole system of thought that it, it just excludes God. See, if you can explain your origin and you don't have to include God, the people of the Enlightenment love this. It was not even a good theory when coming out, when Darwin was bringing it out, but they so embraced it because it gave them the answer that they don't, they don't have to be accountable to God. What are we being held captive to? What philosophy are you buying? That you've got to be tough to be a good businessman. That you, you, you can't be uh, fully disclosed to be a good husband. That you can't live honestly with your hurts and pains to be a good friend. Philosophy. I asked the question, so how does this happen? This is what I would, would ask you guys to talk about in your small group. What philosophies are you embracing that are keeping you from following Christ? What things are holding you back? What, what things are you, are you holding on to that are really holding you captive? Verse 16 is another clue. It's another verb. Um, let me find it here. It says, therefore... No one is to act as your judge in order to regard food or drink or respect. The idea of not having people hold you in judgment. Are you more controlled about what people think than what God thinks? Paul went to one the Colossians. He says, don't let people judge you. Don't let people tell you what you're doing is right or wrong. Why? Because in chapter 1 he said, because God is the only one that can tell you that. That God is the one that's supposed to judge your actions. And when we are so susceptible to the winds of people's opinions that we get tossed to and fro. And that's one side of it. 
As I continue to drill down on this whole idea of, of not letting people judge, I'm also concerned about this. There are some people that go, you're right, I'm not going to let anybody tell me what to do. Period. Those are the same people in their ignorance that don't allow Christ to tell them what to do. See, it's one thing just not to let other people judge you. It's another thing to be your own judge. When you think you've, you know it all, and you don't need to have anybody speak into your lives. There's a very dangerous proposition. This is at the heart of some of that stuff that we talk about around here when we talk about community, when we're talking about how many people speak into your life and around your life. Speak truth. Because number one, if people are not speaking biblically into your life, that's bad counsel. But two, if no one's speaking into your life, then you're playing the fool. And God says there's a happy balance here. He says there's the balance of having people love you enough to speak truth into your life, but there's a discerning aspect of that. Are they just giving you your opinion? Men, if you're hanging around people that are just giving you opinion, save your time. Find men that will talk Scripture into your life. If they can't give you relevant biblical basis for what they're saying, then what they're offering you is what the rest of the world's offering you. An opinion. And he says, this is one of the dangers. This will hurt you in your relationship. Verse 18 is another clue. It says, uh, I think it's verse, yes. Let no one keep you defrauding you of your base by delighting in self-abasement in the worship of angels. Taking his stand on visions he has seen. This idea of being defrauded. What does it mean to be defrauded? This is the question that you ask yourself when you read this verse. What does it mean to be defrauded, to be misled? Are you being taken away? Paul is warning us here that if we get defrauded, if we allow ourselves to be defrauded, which means we are operating, again, this has something to do with all that that stuff that Todd is talking about. If your worldview is not a biblical worldview, you you will be defrauded. You will be misled, and you will embrace things they don't hold up under fire. This is what Paul was so concerned about out there. He says, guys, don't let people carry you away. Don't let them impose these things on you. Test them with the Scriptures. Well, <clears throat> when you go back to your group today, I'm hoping that you, you, you've wrestled with these things in a real way. I'm going to just look at chapter 3 very quickly with you in closing. But in chapter 2, the question is, what What's going on in our lives that keep us from having a a real, live relationship with Jesus? What philosophies are we buying into? Who are we listening to? And are we being defrauded? Take a good look at yourselves. Unless you're running hard down the road and nothing's entangling you, then maybe I'd like to spend some little personal time with you myself. Because I don't know that any of us are there. I think all of us are entangled to some degree or another. Getting together and sharpening one another helps us loosen these, these, these binds of, of philosophies and things that we are embracing that we just don't need to. Paul didn't want these folks to, be, to lose that, what Christ himself had given them. And he says there's a great danger when you start embracing the world. And it's so subtle. You think you're right on target And that's why oftentimes you need the eyes and the ears of other people around you. 
Because I promise you, they'll see things in me and in you that you're missing. I said, look for verbs, chapter 3. If chapter 2 was due to where Paul was warning them, be careful of the philosophies and the defraudings and the rules. Chapter 3, he gets to, says, do these things. Look at the verbs alone in chapter 3 in our, in our closing minutes here. Man, let me race through these. The big idea is in verse th- chapter 3, verse 1. Underline it. Don't be afraid to write in your Bibles. In fact, I would encourage you, you know, these are all off the marking, uh, off the record remarks, but... You know, if you need them, uh, I mean, if you want to come back with me later on, you're certainly welcome to. But I don't think you ever read the scriptures without a pen in your hand. You underline what you're reading, you circle it, you write under a verb, you write yourself a note on the side. We, we think it's even wiser to have a journal or having something where you're kind of logging the different thoughts. Because not only do you come up with, oh, God says this about himself, but then God tells me to do these things. And to date it when the first time you... you made the conviction or the commitment to carry out in something God wanted you to do. Look at these verbs in chapter 3. It says, therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, he keeps going back to that premise. Remember Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Second chapter was avoid these things so that your your relationship with Jesus isn't messed up. Chapter 3 is now do these things that will enhance your relationship. That's the big idea of chapter 3. And and it all builds on this one verse. He says, having been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above. Now, doesn't that sound sweet? I don't know about you, but I don't know a guy in the world. Yeah, I keep thinking about things above. And the first first thing that comes into our life, our minds are off on it. You know, that's that's just the way God has wired us. But these verbs, this is, this is a verb that has a motion that's supposed to be perpetual, that you keep doing this. You keep returning to, thing, to thinking about things that are important, things that have eternal value and consequence. That's what chapter 3 is packaged with. Check out these verbs. Verse 2, set your mind. Starts with the mental preparation. Verse 5, consider your members dead. He's talking about the whole, the whole idea of using your body to uh, enjoy the, the pleasures of the world and being lost in the things that God has created rather than the creator himself. Verse 8, put aside anger, wrath, go on and on. Put aside. It's an action verb. These are, there are verbs here that it says, let, me, let Jesus do these things for you. And then there are certain verbs that are, that are active that say, you need to do this. You need to put aside anger. You need to put aside wrath. You need to put aside some of these behaviors that you were doing that distract, detract from your relationship with Christ and your testimony. If you're acting like an idiot at home, don't expect your children to grow up loving Jesus. There's a message for you. If you're acting like an idiot out in public and people know you're a believer, don't expect those people to want to respond to Jesus. You're fooling yourself. If you do it at the workplace, if you act like any other heathen at your workplace, then don't expect people around you to go, man, I need to know about your Jesus. It's not going to happen, guys. This is what Paul was telling the Colossians. If you really want to see Jesus, and if you want to be a vehicle where people get to see Jesus, you need to act like Jesus. John wrote that in 1 John 2. He said, those who claim to walk in Christ ought to bear the stamp of Christ. 
And if people don't see Christ in you, then it's time to start doing some evaluation and some changes. Some more verbs here. Verse 9, do not lie. Don't, don't fool yourself or, or the impression of other people. Verse 12, put on, put on a heart of compassion. This whole idea of how to live. If you don't care about other people, you're really missing Jesus. I mean, I, this, this is my frustration with our format, guys. I wish I had about three weeks on chapter three with you. I mean, the verbs in this thing, the action, the things that, that he called, God is calling us to do would literally transform your lives, our church, and this world. It just our group of guys did them. Verse 13 says, bear and forgive. It talks about those interpersonal relationships so that you care enough about people that you come alongside. You quit the stinking judgment. But at the same time, you don't let people stay there. And you learn to forgive. And I think this is one of the exciting things that, that we have taken a lot, a lot of ground on around these, uh, this campus. Verse 14, it says to put on love. Talking about how we care more about another person than we do ourselves. Wow. You were graded. This is a good one. Take five of your best friends and ask them to grade you, grade you on your, uh, your love about making other people more important than yourselves, doing nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But let each one of you consider each other as more important. Philippians 2, 3. Uh, how about verse 15? It says, let the, the peace of Christ rule in your heart. In other words, keeping an eternal perspective. And he said, the way Paul writes this is, this is something you practice every day. You can't decide this Sunday morning after Todd's through speaking and go, okay, I've got a terminal perspective. I won't screw up the rest of the week. I won't get lost in the economy going in the toilet. I won't get lost in my kids' frustrations at school. Now, it says, let the peace of Christ rule. It is, again, an ongoing situation where you must put yourself in that. There is no coasting. Can I repeat that? There is no coasting to letting Christ rule in your heart. As soon as you quit peddling, you will go back to the philosophies of the world. Uh, verse 16, let the word of Christ richly dwell in you. That's kind of tough if you're not putting it in you. Uh, verse 17, do all things in the name of Christ. I call this, this is, this is underline this one. This is the paradigm change. This is the one that allows you to do whatever God has called you to do without pushing it through the framework of the world. I'm looking for clues here. I'm saying, God, tell me how to live. And he says, here's how you change what you do and how you do it. You do everything in the name of Christ. Whether that's invest, whether that's in spend, whether that's save, whether that goes to Watermark or Prestonwood or PCPC or wherever God wants to direct you, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It changes your relationship with employers and employees. Yada, yada. Okay. Uh, geez. Verses 18 through 21. You don't think there's, this is the message too. It's instructions for family relationships. Just look at the verbs, how fathers and mothers and kids are supposed to react. And then verses 22 through 25, it's instructions for what I call tiered relationships. It's talking about slaves and masters. But the application to you and me is, is the idea that we are, we have people that we're responsible for and some people that we're responsible to. Everybody is. And he uses this passage of Scripture to say how that relationship should play out. 
in how it plays out, will make a world look at you guys and say, tell me about your God. You know, man, we're not promised tomorrow or next Thursday or the next time I get up here. So I, I'd like to challenge you with more than just knowing what you read in the Scriptures. I want to challenge you the way you're living your lives. That every day is your opportunity to make a difference. And if you think that you've made the journey far enough that you can rest in where you are, then I'm sorry. Because there's none of us that have arrived. There's none of us that can... Uh, be the perfect picture of what Jesus is supposed to look like. But my encouragement to you is that you do what you can do today. Make a difference today. Love well the people God puts in your path. If that's to encourage them, encourage them. If it's to exhort them, exhort them. If it's to admonish them, admonish them. But do it for the name of Christ. Know what you read, men. When you're through reading your scriptures, ask yourself, what did I read And what does God want me to do? Let me pray. Father, thanks for the time in your word. Thanks for these men. Stir their hearts, I pray, continually. Do not allow them to rest. Don't allow me to rest where I am, thinking that somehow I've arrived at some plateau that warrants putting my feet up. But Father, continue to stir our hearts that people might look at every one of us today and want to know about our Jesus. Thanks for this time. Christ. Amen.